So, um, there's a saying, to err is human, to really mess up you need technology. And so, uh, my PowerPoint this morning is corrupt, I guess. So, you get me. And the Word of God. And the Word of God is more than enough. More than enough. I appreciate Jonathan reading the Word of God today to us. I had an up-close view. I don't know if you saw that, but the treasures that he was bringing forth were affecting him. And I pray that they will affect you and me. Because even though we are looking at this passage, and the word gospel does not appear, that's what this passage is about. If you have your Bibles, you may want to crack them open to 2 Corinthians. And when I mean gospel, I mean what God has done to bridge the gap between us, sinful men and women, and Him, a holy God, by sending His Son to live a life we couldn't live, die to pay a price we couldn't pay, rise to give us life we don't have in ourselves, and save us from His judgment. Give us a change of status from saints, from sinners to saints, and give us an eternal destiny and a glorious eternal life. But this is not just information. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response. Because there is no neutral ground. We're either responding to what he's done, or we're saying, no God, you can keep it to yourself. The gospel brings a new reality, a new nature, a new purpose, a new mission. But it also brings rest. And that's what we're going to be digging into today. And it, again, demands an urgent response because life is uncertain. We should delay. With, we should respond without delay. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into these rich treasures that have, God has for us in His Gospels. Hmm. Lord God, we have sung about the worthiness of Your Son. We thank you for sending him, and it changes everything. It changes our status with you, Father. It gives us life that we don't have. It makes us new creations. It gives us new purpose and new mission. So open the eyes of our heart, we pray, that we might respond to you and let your word affect us and affect us and change us and give us vision for how you would have us live. So Lord Jesus, our great Savior, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Back to verse 11 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this passage. That fear... Fear can bring, actually, persuasion of the gospel. You know, the term, the fear of the Lord, is kind of 
fallen upon disfavor to modern ears. And it either is kind of diluted, where we just make the, the term fear the Lord just mere kind of respect, like maybe saying sir or ma'am to somebody in the store, but it doesn't change your life or how you respond. Or the other extreme is the stereotype of making God an angry ogre or tyrant who's just waiting for us to mess up and to to smack us, gives us a smack down. And unfortunately, some of that is brought on by people who have been in authority or parents who have given full vent to their anger to punish others and control them. But what God, what Paul, through God is trying to tell us through Paul, is that the Lord is the one to whom we're going to have to give account for our lives. That's why we should fear him. He is the one who is the perfect arbiter of justice. Again, in verse 10, in the same chapter, we haven't read it, but we read it last time we were here. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. If someone's ever sinned against you, hurt you, abused you, taken advantage of you, and just went on their merry way like they'll get away with it, here's the good news. God's going to deal with that. Whether it's in this life or at the end of this life. But he's not going to let justice remain undone. But here's the double sword, double edge of the sword. See, you and I have sinned against others. We've been abusive. We've been unkind. We've sinned against others. And, you know, God has to deal with our sin. While it's good to say, I'm sorry, while it's good to make restitution, God's standard is perfection. Obedience is expected. It's not a makeup program. You're already behind once you've sinned. And maybe that's a little daunting. As we just say, holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. That's right. There is no one who is like God. He is perfect, and he has no equal. Again, that might be rather daunting. And when we look at him, the truth is, all have sinned, you, me, and fallen short of the glory of God. The fear of the Lord comes in. And rather, it acts more like a red light on your dashboard in your car. It says, hey, there's something wrong here. It's a place where we need to acknowledge that we need to give account for God. A place where we come to the end of ourselves. A place where we know there's nothing we can do to make it right. And yeah, there's a sense of being fearful, but it's also a place where we can receive what God has for us. To take out of our hands our own self-righteousness. Our own means of trying to make ourselves right. And it empties us. And we don't have to depend upon ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, We know what it is to fear God. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there where I know where it comes to the end of myself. But therefore, we try and persuade men because there is a gospel. There is good news. 
Many of you are probably aware of the story about John Newton, a man who lived uh, in the 1700s. John Newton was a slave trader. But he had godly parents who tried to instill the gospel, responding to God and what Christ has done. But he rebelled against it. He said, I'm going to do my own thing. And he found himself capturing African slaves and taking them across the ocean. And then a fearful storm came. And he realized, I might not get out of this. And I'm going to have to account to God. And he called out on the Lord. And John Newton is the author of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And the lyric says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Oh my, I'm going to have to account before God. But in grace, my fears relieved. That's where this is going. Because God has made a way. (laughs) And in my own life, I can remember as a fourth grader in 1974 on a campsite called um, Frontier Ranch hearing about what Christ has done for me and also knowing that I I was falling short of God's glory. I was a sinner. Even in fourth grade I understood that and how I treated people. Whether it was my family or classmates, my brother or my sister. I'd sinned against God. And fear was actually an impetus to respond to the gospel. It's a place where we can receive what God is doing. Now, I'm going to take a a side note here because I don't have time to talk about this fully today, but Paul mentions at the end of verse 13 that he, you know, if we are out of our mind, what is that talking about? Well, Paul, realize Paul is addressing in this, this letter, false teachers who are bringing a false gospel, who is, who is, which is based on what is seen rather than is what in the heart in verse 12. Okay, So it is a false gospel based on human ability to achieve, for achievement and performance. And Paul is going to address that. And he's going to enter into what I call some crazy talk. If we're out of our mind. And we're going to get there in chapters 11 and 12. He says, do you want to talk about your pedigree, about what you've got going on? Okay, let's go there. Let's compare resumes. And if you want to read about it, it starts in verse 16 in chapter 11. And, you know, you just kind of go, dude, I wouldn't use that. But he's, it's exactly it. It's like, yeah, it's crazy talk. You want to compare resumes? Okay, let's go there. Let's talk about that. I got you beat, and it's still nothing. It's still nothing. So, the fear of the Lord teaches us that there's nothing we can do to make things right between us and a holy God. And it empties our hands to receive the love that God has in the gospel. So, number two, love reveals new realities of the gospel. And I've got five of these realities to list here. The first of which is God's love. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. There's a new revelation of God's love. In the Old Testament, God tells us He loves us. 
In fact, if you go to Psalm 136, it says, His love endures forever. 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 26 times he tells us that. And there's, you know, there's a line that kind of tells us how does his love endure forever. But mostly it's about God delivering his people from Egypt and caring for them and taking care of them, which is an expression of God's love. And the fact that he does not treat them as their sin deserves. That is an old covenant. But in a new covenant, it says God came, put on flesh, and he died for us to bring us back to himself. There's a new revelation of love in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, we're shaking our fist at God. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice to pay for our sins. See, sometimes I think because life is hard, we can convince ourselves that God doesn't love us. Because life is hard, God, you are you're dumping on me. But this God doesn't spare His Son. And pursuing us. He sends him into the hardness and the brokenness of this world to pursue us, even though we don't even want him. To pay a price extravagantly for the justice that we deserve. And to make us his own. And the motive is love. To reconcile us to himself. I know this sounds simplistic, but if you don't think God loves you, look at the cross. It is the initial debt He paid so that we might be reconciled to Him. He loves you extravagantly. He's pursuing you in His Son. Number two, there's a new creation. And this is not in verse order, but it's in what I believe is probably salvation order what takes place verse 17 there's a new creation therefore if anyone is in christ a new creation has come the old is gone and the niv doesn't include this but they should it says behold the new has come look 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 believer the new has come it is the supernatural reality of when you Put your faith in Christ, you become born again. Born from above. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. But it's not just the regeneration so that you can believe right now. It's the regeneration so you can live a whole different life because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you, to make His residence in you, to give you power that you do not have in yourself. You are a new creation. And you don't have to be stuck in that old identity of whatever that was. For John Newton, it was a slave trader. Now, he's a new creation. That's one of the beautiful things about working with Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge. They see the change. And they need to keep anchored in that new identity. I am a new creation in Christ. 
This is important because we can forget who we are in Christ and what God has done. And sometimes we even revert back to the old ways, even trying to please Christ out of our own resources, out of our own abilities. It's like, no, you can't do that. But I can through you. If we try it ourselves, this drudgery is discouraging. It's like trying to get a car going, and so we push it, right? It moves, but it's not moving a whole lot. It's not how God intended it. But then when we put some gas in it, turn on the engine, all of a sudden, wow, this is what God intended. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You have a new nature. And God has put His Holy Spirit into you to give you strength and power to do what you can't do in your flesh. Look, if anyone is in Christ, behold, the new has come. The old is past, the new has come. He gives you a new purpose. Verse 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. A self-centered life is what we're born with. A self-centered life or view is what separated us from God as we sinned against Him. A self-centered life is what brings conflict between you and me, between us and God, and is what makes us miserable. I am most miserable when I'm thinking about myself, what I'm not getting, what I'm being slighted of, I'm miserable even to the point where I can't even rejoice in something good happening to somebody else. But when I have a new view of living for Him, then I'm in a place where I can experience His joy. It's a place where God is trying to set us free from spiritual narcissism. To be about Him, to be about His kingdom, His interests, His glory. And unfortunately, that's part of a false gospel that's being presented today, I think. If you put your faith in Christ, He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's going to bring in your life your best life now. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what the Scripture says. Even in this same chapter, it says, look, we're living in these tents. And we're waiting to be taken to our heavenly dwelling, to be clothed with that. That's not how it works. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us. That doesn't mean that God doesn't bring good things in our life. But we don't follow God just to make Him the cosmic vending machine in the sky. To pursue the blesser just for the blessings. He is worth pursuing in Himself. And that's why it's a false gospel, because it's idolatry. Do we want God for Himself? And that's the new, the new purpose, is to live for Him rather than for ourselves. He wants to give us joy, and that joy is ultimately found in knowing Him and following Him. That's why the Apostle Paul will say in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, twice, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice in Him. Jesus gives the amazing privilege to live for Him, His interests, and He gives us joy and He gives us a new view. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from the worldly point of view. But we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. 
In Christ, you're a new creation. You're given a new purpose to live for him. And he gives us a new view of people. Again, that they are made in the image of God. Because, you know, so often we can value people the way our world values them. We can value them for their beauty, their ability, their wealth. That's not the kind of view that God wants to give us. He wants to give us a view of the people around us as those who, for whom God, Jesus died. You know, and it's easy to look with eyes of the flesh. As we find in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, a man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He's trying to give us a different view of who people are and what he wants to do in them. That's part of this new creation. He gives us a new new eyes for people. So I ask the question just as a challenge, is there someone in your life who you're viewing with earthly eyes? Whether it's their appearance, their ability, or even their behavior, can you see them with the eyes of Christ and what he might want to do in them and through them? Ask the Lord to give you his vision. Number five, a new mission. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's a lot in those verses, and that could be its own message. But here's some things we need to know. The gospel begins with God. It is executed by God through Christ. And it is a ministry of reconciliation. Again, bridging the gap between sinful man and a holy God. But here's the thing. God commits that ministry to bring it forward, oftentimes, through those who have been reconciled. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. Even to the point where he says, I have made you my ambassadors to represent me. Certainly in context, Paul is talking about his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians, to bring the gospel to um, the Corinthians and the, the Roman world. But the point is, God's plan A to get his gospel out there is you and me. That's his plan A. He doesn't need us, but he wants to use us to get that word out. People who have been reconciled to take that message of reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. I beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is the message. Because we've experienced what that is like. Here's the question, though, we need to ask. How are you, how am I doing it being God's ambassador of reconciliation? And not just telling people about that message, because that is important. But how we represent it, how, how we represent him. How do people see us? Are we combative? Are we demeaning of others? 
Am I anything who my Lord is in my demeanor and my character and my actions? Do people see this in me at work? And here's something a little closer. Do people see the ministry of reconciliation in my home? With my spouse? With my kids? It has to start at home. At home. Are we quick to reconcile with those we're in conflict with? Or do we hold grudges? In your own family? In the family of God? He's given us the the ministry of reconciliation. Are we quick to try and bring reconciliation if there is conflict? Or do we punish people in our anger? Do we realize what a privilege it is to be an ambassador of the living Christ? And the good news is the gospel is not dependent upon that, but it is something he has entrusted us with. Okay, big point number three. Grace brings rest through the gospel. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing statement of grace. And we, I say it almost every time we serve communion. Every time we take the Lord's Supper. But it is a great exchange of an amazing reality that God puts on His Son, our sin. He becomes sin for us on the cross. And then as we put our faith in Him, we get His righteousness. Seems unfair. Seems unjust. But that's how God fulfills His own justice. That He can be both just and the justifier. And I hope that impacts you. I hope that impacts me. There's a little microcosm of what God has done in sending His Son for us. So I want you to be out there preaching the gospel to people, making this known. But you know the first person you need to start with is yourself. Preach that gospel to yourself. And if you know that is true, that will make you a much more effective ambassador. And you can rest. Because the pressure is off. It doesn't mean that I have to meet God's standard, because I can't. God met it for me. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. And something we can rest in. Last of all, Uncertainty compares, compels us to an urgent response to the gospel. We're getting into chapter 6 now, verses 1 and 2. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You know what this is addressing? This is addressing fence-sitters in the church. This is addressing fence-sitters in the church. People who know the gospel, they know what God has done, 
but they're not willing to commit themselves to Christ. They know the information. It's not a matter of information. It's a matter of surrender. It's a matter of saying, okay, Jesus, I want to receive you. I am yours and you are mine. Earlier in an earlier ministry, I was working in a town where they had a Christian college. And I remember addressing a young man. Had a lot going on for him. We were sitting there. I appreciated him because he was honest with me. He said, you know, I'm kind of interested just now and kind of doing my own thing, having a good time, which meant partying and chasing women. He said, but, but later on, I'll, I'll get serious about Jesus. And I was just thinking, dude, you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. First of all, because in continuing that behavior, you're actually hardening your heart. You don't even know it. But you're hardening your heart towards the Lord. But second of all, your life is uncertain. You don't know if tomorrow's guaranteed you. And I don't mean to exploit this, but even in our own community, a young man, 12-year-old, was out in a snowmobile and hit a tree. And now he's dead. That young boy had his whole life ahead of him. But now it's done. Life is uncertain. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, he was preaching in Chicago. And he was delivering the message and he decided, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask people to respond tonight. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And so he waited. And the great Chicago fire took place that evening. And hundreds perished in that fire. And he said, I'm never doing that ever again. Today is the day of salvation. Respond now. And if that is you, if you're sitting on the fence, I am not trying to manipulate you. I'm just telling you the facts. That life is uncertain. You don't have tomorrow guaranteed to you. I don't have tomorrow guaranteed to me. I don't have the next hour guaranteed to me. But if I put my life in, in Christ, my faith in Christ, I have His life guaranteed to me. But I want, to, I want to say something kind of moving from the fear end to the life end of this. In another ministry, I was in working with an old retired cop named Sam Secord. His wife, Velda, came to our church, and Sam was a crusty old cop who was really cynical. And he was putting off Jesus and one of our pastors of visitation, this old Mennonite pastor named Albert Neufeld, kept coming to Sam and sharing the gospel with him. And we were praying for Sam. <sighs> Nothing. He was just, Albert, I don't have anything to do with that. I see those Christians on Saturday night at the, beer, at the bar, and then they're in church on Sunday morning. He had a point. What kind of ambassadors are those people? But then Sam had a health crisis, had a heart attack. And then Albert came in and said, Okay, Sam, are you ready to give your life to Christ? Albert, I think I am. So, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, right? And grace my fears relieved. 
Sam put his faith in Christ. That's not the end of the story, though. Albert, I mean, Sam becomes this, from this crusty old cop to this joyful Christian that wants to share God's grace. He becomes one, actually one of our deacons who's like coming alongside of people who are, you know, in crisis and sharing Christ with them. And he says, you know, if I knew how much fun it would have been to follow Jesus all this time, I would have given my life to Jesus years ago. My point is, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life living for yourself, living for this world. Because Christ has something so much better for you. Today is the day of salvation. If you have not put your faith in Christ, He wants to give you life. And He wants to give it to the full. That doesn't mean what this world means. But it means He wants to give you life to the full, experiencing His joy and investing in something that will last forever. And you'll have joy through all that. So, The gospel wants to relieve us from fear. And in love, it wants to transform us, giving us, a new, giving us a new nature, a new view, a new mission, and a new purpose, and a place to rest when we fail. Because we will. But it's good news. It can change our lives now and will change our eternal destiny. And what a great thing to lean into. So let me pray, and Aaron, will you bring the worship team up and close us in a minute here? Hmm. So Lord, I thank you for this good word to us, the richness thereof, and um, thank you that there's so much there to continue to discover and learn. But help us to hang our hat on that. Lord, if there's somebody in here today that has been keeping you at arm's length, would you give them grace to surrender today? To say yes to you, Jesus, and to surrender to you. To put their faith in you and to start living for you, Lord. So if that's you, my friend, you can just pray these words after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've been doing my own thing. I know that I will have to stand before you at the end of time. But I also know that you came to be my Savior. You came to be my Lord and give me life. I don't have myself. So Jesus, come into my life. I surrender to you. I turn away from my own self-will. Come and do in me what I cannot do myself. Make me your child. Give me your life. I put my faith in your death and your resurrection. And thank you for the promise that as to many as believed in them, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. I take you to your word. And for the rest of us, Lord, keep reminding us that we are a new creation in you with a new mission, with a new view. And God, you've given us a great ministry as being your ambassadors. May we reflect you well. And in those moments when we fail, may we rest in you well as well. Thank you, Jesus.
for who you are as a good Savior and Lord. In your name I pray these things. Amen.